This is CliffCentral.com. Good afternoon. You're live with us on the Daily Maverick Show on CliffCentral.com. My favorite hour of the week, time for the Daily Maverick Show. My name is Kingsley Kipuri. As usual, I'll be your host for the next hour. Firstly, a shout out to Duncan Mabaso in the background here. He's bringing us coffee and water before the show, and we appreciate it, keeping us fueled. Now, to get into it, um, quite a packed show lined up. First, we'll start local. Looking at MP attendance, who's actually sitting in those parliamentary committees and who isn't? Secondly, we'll be doing some fact-checking, talking to our friends at Africa Check, um, who fact-check Zuma's Sona speech and seeing what's, what's true, what's not so true, and what's a gray area. Secondly, we'll go international, talk a bit about a hashtag Uganda Decides, as it's being called on Twitter. We have a, a presidential election going on in the East African country of Uganda uh, that's set to go off on Thursday, but we've had some, some issues there, some police presence, some brutality uh, that's being accused, sort of the, uh, that's being um, perpetrated by the state or so reports are coming in. So we'll be talking to Human Rights Watch and seeing what they have to say about that. And lastly, we'll be looking at the American elections, a story that's going to be playing out the whole year, I'm sure. Um, look at Hillary Clinton, Bernie Sanders, and of course Donald Trump, and, and seeing what's coming out of there. Of course, remember you can join the conversation on Twitter. That's at DM Shows today, and we'll be looking at that and reading out any fun tweets from there. Whew. Okay, time to get started. But first, my comrade walked in the studio a bit late. Greg Nicholson, thank you for joining us. No, it's my pleasure. I also <laughs> missed last week, so oh, I, I forgot. Yeah, I think if I was an MP in Parliament, I'd definitely be the tardy one. <laughs> Speaking of this, let's go over to it. We'll be talking to Marianne Tam, the Daily Maverick assistant editor, um, who's been looking into this. Uh, Marianne, can you hear us? Perfect. I'm here. Ah, fantastic. Now, Marianne, I'm, I'm really, less, really interested in digging into this. Um, firstly, it's just by talking a bit about the People's Assembly. What is this organization and where is this data coming from about MP attendance in the parliamentary committees? Well, the People's Assembly... Um, uh get this data from uh, the Parliamentary Monitoring Group. These are both NGOs or, or um, organizations that attend the committee meetings and write up the reports, look at the handsards, and monitor mm. the activities of Parliament. And so you can get all of this data, um, you know, it's available, freely available, but many of us don't have the time to go through it all. Mm. Mm. Um, so there are various different organizations and NGOs that, um, in a sense, are there for transparency and accountability. And the People's Assembly is a great website. I mean, it gives you a whole lot of background on all your representatives. You can look at attendances. You can do various things on it. So um, they've crunched the data, and um, the data sort of throws up these grids, and you can go through it and at your heart's delight and see who's working and who isn't. And, and it doesn't always indicate that someone's mm, mm. lazy, but it gives you a sense of, of kind of committee meetings and who was there and who wasn't. I mean, absolutely. I was playing with it a bit last night and this morning, and it just seems like such a great tool to, great. to make an ordinary citizen sort of feel involved in, in, in the process of you know, governance. Yeah, no, it's, it's fantastic. And there are, there are many other sort of mm. um, uh, what can be called a sort of data crunching thing. This is mm. where journalism is going, where because you know, in the past, in, in, in the apartheid government, there were 13 committees and these were closed and they were secret. Mm. So, I mean, the positive thing about all of this is that it is a people's parliament and it's open and, you know, everything is accessible apart from those where meetings are closed for various other reasons like security uh, or, or intelligence. But So we really can um, get that drilled down and see what's, what's happening. Uh, parliament itself is very open. The parliamentary website offers uh, a whole calendar of what's on in the year uh, so that members of the public can attend. Um, so essentially what this tool is in a way is a way of just taking what's there and making it accessible. 
I mean, that's wonderful. Um, now to actually dig into, you know, the stuff you read. I mean, first, I just like to start with a, you know, potentially silly question just to contextualize the numbers. Um, you know, why are these committee meetings so important? I mean, you describe them as the, the engine room of parliament. Uh, what do you mean by that? Well, this is where I think, you know, if things are interrogated, where officials are brought and held to account uh, where the actual work of parliament is done. I mean, the, the theater of parliament is, happens at Sona and, and in the House of Assembly mm-hmm. where people ask questions or where um, MPs get a chance to make their speeches and that's what's broadcast and that we all watch. And then, but there is the parliamentary committee channel. If you want to watch that, you will fall asleep within 20 minutes if you're an ordinary person. But that's where all the work gets done. Where, you know, so many of our MPs arrive without any experience um, of politics. It's not a necessarily, you know, if you're an elected official, it's not something you've necessarily studied or know, or some people might be studying it. But these committees also help where experts are brought in from the outside um, to talk about technical details of legislation or of a particular issue. And so a lot of knowledge is gained in the committees. Um, and I think there's a lot of swapping of information as well. So, you know, that's why it's, it's such an important part of the democratic process. And Marianne, what can we tell after you've looked at these figures of which parties and which politicians are taking the committees most seriously? Well, I mean, we have to understand that the smaller parties, it's very difficult if you are the UDM and you've only got three members uh, to attend, I suppose, all of the committee meetings. So the point about it is that you have to be selective, I suppose, and I'm not sure exactly how party whips decide where members will be or where they will influence something. But what I can tell you is that when you look at the overall load, that politicians work really hard. Now, some of them might not be going to those committee meetings for, for uh, they might have real good reasons why they're not there. But the point is, is that it is a job that requires a huge amount of engagement. Um, because when they, when they're not, uh, um, uh, you know, when they, when they're there, they've got to spend three or four days preparing for these committees. Mm-hmm. And they've got to go to the plenaries and they have to go to the study groups as well and read copious amounts of documents. Not all MPs do that, and this uh, app doesn't show you which particular person has actually done all their homework and, and come to grips with mm. the issues that are there. But, but what you can tell from just surfing around this particular site is that it really is an all-consuming job, and if you get elected to office, there's no, there shouldn't be a free ride, and I think party whips also watch you. Um, so it's really... You know, people often think that politicians are this is, you know, it's just about the election and it's about going out and having rallies, but it's not. It's really hard work. There's constituency work that needs to be done. Um, and there is coming to grips with a lot of very complex issues that really affect people's lives on a daily basis. So that's what this app also helped me to see. Mm. So so do you think this this sort of data made, made accessible and easy to understand Um sort of demystifies this myth that politicians are just sitting in, in Parliament and sleeping and they're unprepared? Um, I'm not sure if it can demystify that, but what it can do is just present you with, uh, with data. And uh, what's, what's good about data is that it's, you can only interpret what you have in front of you. I'm not sure, you know, perhaps one could speak to uh, people uh, in Parliament itself about who, which members of opposition parties or the ruling party are really active in those committees and do they work really hard. But considering what you know, gets pushed through Parliament. I think there were delays last year because of Nkandla and the ad hoc committee there, so a lot of other attention was taken away. Uh, I do think people are doing their work. And, um, you know, if you're sitting there and that's your, you're an elected, elected representative, then um, you've got to do the work. I see I've just got a message now from one of the very hard-working 
uh, MPs uh, f- uh, from the ISP, from Naren Singh, and yeah. I've got a little message saying, well, could, could we call you? Um, probably wanting to say, listen, I wasn't at the meeting or for whatever reason, good reason. But what it does is that it exposes, as you say, the architecture um, of, of what's happening. Uh, journalists know this because they're there all the time, attending mm-hmm. those meetings. But um, so I thought it was a really, really good app, and not many parliaments have this, and so we're very lucky to have it. I mean, I mean, I hear you on the data um, and the importance of context in attendance and so on. But just looking at it, I mean, some things were quite worrying. I mean, looking at the uh, Julius Malema's only eight percent attendance last year, the yes, EFF yes, dropping yes. down to twenty eight percent, and and, yes. and you know some things like that. I know this, there may be context, but just looking purely at the numbers, it can be a bit worrying to feel like you 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 vote for a party and they're only attending, you know, you know, twenty eight percent of meetings. That's the great thing. You can go in and see, because politicians, as we know, love to say things in public, and often, you know, mm. kind of, it's a great soundbite, but when you actually look at the data, you can see this. I think it would be quite nice if we could maybe speak to some of these MPs and say, all right, you know, you, you, you attend zero of these committee meetings. Why is that? Uh, and you can see they were supposed to, next to each um, a member is the number of meetings they should have gone to, uh, and why didn't they? And there's some people who should have only gone to one meeting and who haven't been. Mm. Um, so I think you would have to ask the, the MPs themselves, or if you voted for, for a particular Absolutely. party, go through it and send a little email saying, uh, explain please. And Absolutely. Maria, next time you get a, a call from anyone wanting to defend themselves, please let's send them our way so we can, we can talk to them. We'll the do that. To explain 0% <laughs> attendance. But what? it'll be just great for people to go around and have a look at all the various tools. Hopefully I can do another story on the other tools that are available on members' interests and... Um, uh, so it really is a very open uh, process. Hmm, please do. I mean, I've been playing with the spreadsheets and, and we'll make sure to share it online on, on Twitter. And I think it's just really a great tool that we can all use journalists and others. Great. All right, Marianne, unfortunately, that's all the time we have. But thanks for making time. And, and please come on again when you write that, the second story. We will. <laughs> okay. I will. Okay, perfect. <laughs> Take Thank care. Cheers. Right, Bye. As mentioned, we'll make sure to share the tool. Great spreadsheet. You can track and, and find a member of parliament and see what they're up to. You can even track a bill and see the progress of the bill. It's a really, really great tool. And I've been, like I said, a few times I've been playing with it. And, and, and it's, it's pretty great. Um, the People's Assembly also has their, their website. They break down in, mm. things into infographics. For, yeah. So for, for example, some things, we talked a lot, a lot last year about Operation Fiala and the arrest numbers mm. there. They actually broke it down into easy, under, under, uh, understandable charts where you can look at all of who's getting arrested, what they're getting arrested for, where they're getting arrested. Fantastic. If you're just tuning in, it's the Daily Maverick Show on Cliff Central. I'm just getting into sort of this little second segment we're going into, and we'll be talking a bit about the elections going on in Uganda, and we'll be speaking to Maria Burnett, Senior Researcher for Human Rights Watch. Uh, Maria, can you hear us? Yes, I can. Thank Fantastic. You. Maria, I know you've been on hold for a bit. Thanks for being patient with us. Okay. Okay, fantastic. Uh, Maria, um, we've been seeing some reports on Twitter of some violence and sort of a police presence and so on. But before we dig into that, I'd love if you could just give us some context on these elections. Um, you know, you know who's running, what's at stake, and, and before we dig into what's happening right now. Sure. So on Thursday, Ugandans will go to the polls in presidential and primary elections. President Yari Museveni, who has been in office since February of 1986, so 30 years ago, uh, is running yet again for a five-year term. Uh, he's being faced by seven other uh, opposition candidates. Mm-hmm. The most obvious leaders are Dr. Kizabezje, a longtime opposition leader, and the former prime minister of Uganda, Amama Mbabazi. 
Okay, so we've got you know one person who's been in, pres- in presidency, some might say for far too long, and two people who were both you know uh, part of his staff, one the prime minister as you mentioned, and one part of his medical team, and that sort of sets the scene. Yeah, that's it? true. Absolutely, and you had we had the, the the presidential debates happening quite recently, and what are some of the key issues that that Ugandans are grappling with? Well, the two debates, the first one covered domestic issues and the second one covered regional and international issues mm-hmm. of foreign policy. Uh, in the first one, uh, President Museveni did not appear. He claimed that he was too busy on the campaign trail, mm-hmm. having committed himself to visit every constituency. But the second one, he did come. As far as issues, I mean, domestically, I think there are a lot of concerns about basic services, things like health mm-hmm. and education. There's a lot of criticisms that President Museveni has had a long time to prove the ability to deliver on those services, and that those services remain in very bad shape. Okay, and and that sort of brought us to what we're, now what we're seeing the reports coming out. We're seeing we're hearing that uh, that opposition leaders are being uh, intimidated, some being arrested. Could you just tell us what's going on and some of the um, um, the state actions against <laughs> the opposition members and opposition leaders? Yeah, so yesterday was a pretty rough day mm. in Kampala. Uh, Dr. Bezajay, who is generally speaking quite popular in Kampala, particularly among uh, youth, um, had his day of campaigning in, in Kampala. And uh, there was a dispute between the police and his party about which roads to take and how he was allowed to process into Kampala. And through Kampala, uh, he draw, drew a very, very large crowd uh, and eventually the police chose to take him into custody and to bring him back to his home, which is far outside of Kampala. Mm. Uh, he then turned around and proceeded back into Kampala to try to finish his day of campaigning, uh, and he was eventually uh, basically surrounded by police who ended up throwing tear gas. Uh, it would appear that one of his party supporters was shot. Uh, that's been confirmed by the police, but I can't say exactly who shot him. Mm-hmm. I have not seen any allegations that anyone other than the police had uh, done, so we'll have to see, and we'll obviously be doing our own investigations into that. Uh, but ultimately, Dr. Bezajay was uh, towed in his car to a police station and eventually released late at night. So his campaign rallies were heavily affected. We have at least one person who was killed. Uh, and the opposition are arguing that others were seriously injured. My understanding is 21 people were arrested and charged with various crimes. So it was certainly not a not a good way to start off the last few days of the campaign. I mean, it's also sad to see an incumbent sort of using, um, you know, the police and so on as part of the sort of election work in sort of arresting and intimidating, you know, opposition leaders. And Maria, I mean, we this isn't the first time we've seen this in Uganda, is it? Could you just tell us a bit about the violence that's played out before and, and how different or similar this is to what we've seen from, from President Museveni in the past? Yeah, there's a long-standing allegation that I believe is backed up by solid research mm. that the police act in partisan ways. That is, that they hold the opposition uh, captive in some cases, that they are uh, abusive in the context of patrolling public rallies and public demonstrations, that they use excessive force and sometimes lethal force during public demonstrations or uh, protests against the government, and that can make the environment turn brutal very quickly. Mm. Uh, Even the use of tear gas, we have many documented settings in which tear gas has been used as a weapon, you know, pointed directly at the journalist who's trying to cover events as they unfold. Mm. So the tear gas becomes a weapon in and of itself. Um, that uh, is obviously a serious concern for the opposition, who clearly have very little faith in the police to keep them safe. 
We also have a lot of concerns about this recruitment of what are known in Uganda as crime preventers. Uh, it's been an effort by the police to, they argue, increase community policing by recruiting mm. uh, literally millions of people in every village. And we've done research to document how they're involved in human rights abuses. We have cases of them being involved in torture. They have very little training. They're not really regulated. They're also not paid. So they act on behalf of the state and ultimately can act as the sort of eyes and muscle of the mm. ruling party. We've argued that they should be disbanded. The police chief has argued that they are an important component to his community policing program. So it's that kind of environment mm. where human rights are vulnerable, and we remain really concerned about the post-electoral environment. There's certainly a chance that we'll see electoral results contested. I mean, absolutely. I mean, I mean, that was my next question. I mean, given all this playing out, I mean, how do you see this affecting uh, the elections on 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 Thursday? I know it's I know it's, it's speculative right now, but do you see the do you see the opposition leader still being able to to run and be voted for? Do you anticipate that people trying to vote opposition and and mobilize for the opposition might also be in harm's way? What do you think? Well, I think that a lot of these incidents where we see brutality on the mm, streets and mm. the use of tear gas, I think that one of the concerns is beyond the abuse on the day itself. It discourages voter turnout. You know, people feel that the system is is set up, that it's not a level playing field for all candidates, and therefore there's no reason to participate because people are skeptical that anyone other than President McEvany can be declared the winner. Um there are a lot of allegations that the Electoral Commission is partisan as well. That being said, there have been three months of campaigns. The opposition has largely been able to carry out rallies in different parts of the country, though they haven't been able to do that, you know, without any obstruction. They have been able to access uh, campaign rallies in many parts of the country. Uh, what we'll see on Thursday is very hard to say. Uh, but as I said, I think the real concern is what will happen afterwards. Will people accept the electoral results? Will there be a protest? about the integrity of the electoral process. You know, frequently if people show up and their name is not in the voter registry or they're not in, they ultimately are not permitted to vote for a technical mm. reason, that that can prompt a lot of, you know, serious concerns and people may choose to protest outcomes that they feel are unfair. Um, you know, in that context, we have to be very concerned about the security forces' use of lethal force. I mean, absolutely. Uh, Maria, if we could just take a step back, and, and, and I know you do some research on, on Somalia, also in some other places in the region. Um, it, it feels to me, this is a completely uninformed opinion, like as if the region is almost heating up with the issues we saw in Ethiopia, with some of the protests around the moving of the borders of Addis Ababa. We have the issues in, in Burundi with pre President Kurunziza trying to go for a third term. Now these issues in Uganda. Um, is it is it is it fair based on your research? Does it feel like um, the political climate in East Africa is is getting perhaps more confrontational or more violent? Or what do you think is happening? Well, I think it's interesting. You know, President Museveni pushed to amend the constitution in Uganda to change term limits, and you know we have a lot of questions about the integrity of that legislative process and and payouts that were made to influence that process. But when you look around in the region. Clearly, there's a move by, you know, several sitting presidents to amend their constitutions in various ways to be able to stay in power. And we remain very concerned that in that context, human rights abuses are, are likely and in some cases much more likely to occur as people push back against what they feel is an unfair legislative process that favors, you know, one sitting leader. Um, so it's a it's a very difficult region right now, as you mm. say, with both President Kagame and President Nkurunziza and President Kagame and President uh, Kabila all pushing to 
stay in power longer than their constitutionally mandated term limits. Um, now, that being said, you know, President Museveni has been in office for a very long time. Mm. And, uh, you know, if there's instability in Uganda, it will clearly cause, uh, you know, challenges for neighboring countries. I think many people think of it as a sort of, you know, Western ally stronghold in the region. And absolutely. Maria, thank you so much for, you know, breaking it down for us and, and for your great work over there at Human Rights Watch. And we hope to chat to you again after the elections just to sort of touch base again. Absolutely. Okay, Thanks great. so much for having no, me. No, absolutely. Thank you. You're just tuning in to Daily Mavic Show on Cliff Central. We were just speaking to Maria Burnett, senior researcher in the Africa Division at Human Rights Watch. And they're following the Uganda decision very closely. Not the Uganda decision, the Uganda elections <laughs> that you can follow on hashtag Uganda Decides on Twitter. Just going into a very short break and then we'll come back and talk a bit about the American elections. We'll see you just Stay informed and up to date. It's the Daily Maverick Show, Tuesdays, 1 to 2 p.m. on cliffcentral.com. Good afternoon. You're back with us on the Daily Maverick Show on Cliff Central. Just about halfway through what we're discussing, which was a bunch of stuff. Talked a bit about uh, the Ugandan elections that's happening right now. People are set to vote on Thursday. Also, talked a bit about uh, MP attendance in parliamentary committees and we, we've shared a great tool on Twitter where you can track MP attendance in different meetings and uh, you can search for parties and some really cool stats, especially on averages of different parties and how they're doing. Um, now to go international, we'll be talking a bit about the American elections and what's happening there. On the line we have Brooke Spector from the Daily Maverick. Can you hear us? Hello. Hi Brooks. can you hear us okay? I can hear you now. Yes, go ahead. <laughs> okay, perfect. Brooks, I mean, this is something we keep coming back to, uh, the American elections, and you really keep us on the pulse of what's of what's playing out. Um, Greg has really been interested in talking a bit about Justice Scully and what's happening there. Greg? No, I think Brooks is quite interesting as as observers who aren't so in tune, you know, with the American um, uh, political scene. The the recent death of Justice Antonio um, Antonio Antonin Scalia. I always get I get confused with his first name Antonin. I think it is right. That's correct. He, um, was, known, he was known as Noni among his friends and childhood acquaintances. Mm. But so the death of a justice of the Supreme Court all of a sudden seems to have taken precedence in the political discussion and and only played into the polarization of the American politics right now. Well, I mean, what's interesting uh, about this? It usually, or historically, uh, the passing of a Supreme Court justice did not become a major factor in an American election, uh, if for no other reason that judges are appointed for life, unlike South Africa with the Constitutional Court. Um, and they rarely uh, come at a time when the court is as divided as it has been in recent years. Uh, Justice Scalia was arguably the strongest, most fervent, strict constitutionalist, what he referred to as an originalist. That is, there's no point in looking at the intent of legislators or the, the writers of the Constitution or legislators who wrote laws based on the Constitution. The only thing that mattered was the word itself, uh, whether it was back from 1787 or passed last month in Congress. Uh, and as a result, his his whole judicial ethos became a kind of a goad in the court on a whole range of things. But now you've got three different divisions of the government, the president, obviously, the Congress, which is also up for, for election, 
all of the House of Representatives and a third of the Senate, and now the, the right of a president uh, to appoint Scalia's successor, because if it were a Democrat, and arguably, obviously, if it were Barack Obama now, um, this would tip the balance in the court, perhaps for a generation, mm-hmm. uh, significantly toward the more liberal uh, living constitution interpreters uh, and away from the strict constitutionalists. And so you have all three branches of the government largely up for grabs as a result of one election that takes place this year. And that, I don't know if it's unprecedented, but certainly it's, it hasn't happened for a very long time. And the way the court is now positioned, it's going to have some serious choices to make on cases that have already been heard or are already scheduled for between now and the end of the court session later on in this year when they usually render their judgments in uh, late May and early June on all the various court cases they have heard. So if you have a court that is divided uh, politically eight, uh, four and four, uh, whatever the previous, the lower court's decision was remains but it doesn't become a precedent binding on all other court decisions mm-hmm. across the country. So it's become a politically charged thing. Repub- almost before Scalia's body was cold, this was, this was pretty grim, Republicans already started the, the, the chant that Obama should not nominate a replacement because the will of the people should be heard in the coming election rather than as... Quite reasonably, it was pointed out, the Constitution says nothing about lame duck presidents mm-hmm. not being allowed to nominate people in the last year of their presidency. Now, uh, uh, I uh, think the advantage to the argument goes to the Democrats on this one, but what it's going to do is it's now going to become part of the furniture of the, the election debates and contestations both among the presidential candidates, even at the primary level, to some degree, and certainly uh, on the uh, campaigns of some senators who come from the Republican Party, but are of in states where the balance can shift either way, depending on the way some issues play out. So it's mm-hmm. going to become an enormously more interesting and difficult problem, uh, and one that I suspect would have delighted Judge Scalia, even though he wishes, I suspect, he was still around to watch it. Now, so it actually seems fascinating. With Obama, I'd imagine, wanting to push through, he would like, I'd imagine, to get uh, uh, another Supreme Court justice, but the Republicans saying they'll block it in the Senate. But Yeah, yeah. Now, let's, you, you mentioned the primaries and what's happening right now. Can you just take us there? Um, we, saw, we saw New Hampshire about a week ago. Where are we at with both parties? Well, where we are now, of course, is that in the... Um in the Democrats, Hillary Clinton won the Iowa caucus by a squeaker. You know, a couple hundred votes in, in a couple of different precincts probably would have swung it the other way. And uh, she was beaten rather substantially in New Hampshire. Both of those states uh, are, of course, small in population, almost entirely white in their demographics, and rather more rural than the rest of the country. So you can argue that in neither case are they representative of the nation as a whole. Uh, You can also argue that it shows 
rather more extraordinary strength for Bernie Sanders than mm. anybody would have given him credit for just six months ago. Uh, as a result, it makes South Carolina, which is the next one up for grabs, and the caucus in Nevada uh, that much more important. South Carolina's demographics are starkly different, uh, and we'll get to that in a second. On the Republican side, uh, Donald Trump uh, won one of these things, and Ted Cruz won the other. Um, and Donald Trump, of course, who loves to call himself a winner, uh, was rather suitably chastened by having come in second. Uh, but South Carolina, for the Republicans, uh, their primary comes on the 20th and the Democrats on the 27th. Uh, South Carolina Demo Democrats demographically are much more likely to be uh, African American, uh, much more likely to be uh, urban and not rural, uh, and those are seemingly going to be Hillary Clinton's advantage, and perhaps less so to Bernie Sanders. Among the Republicans, and we, we look at that vote on the 20th, the, the member, the people who vote for Republicans, a considerable portion of them uh, have been members of the military or military retirees who found South Carolina's climate congenial to retire to and the cost of living a little lower and so forth, um, almost entirely white uh, and strictly uh, and strongly um, conservative in their, ori in their orientation politically. Um, and so it's, it's turning into something of a real catfight among the Republicans. Um, this has uh, not been tamped down, or rather it's like pouring uh, lighter fluid on a, on a campfire. Uh, when Donald Trump uh, took it upon himself to attack one of the great verities of the Republican Party, that uh, George W. Bush had saved America from uh, fate worse than death, um, Saddam Hussein's Iraq with its weapons of mass destruction, stroke deception. Uh, and he said, wait a minute, George W. Bush didn't keep the country safe. It was all a lie. We all would have been better off if, a, if Saddam Hussein hadn't been replaced in the first place. Now, to a lot of Republicans, that's just a, a notch away from, from heresy. Mm -hmm. uh, and Jeb Bush, who's running as one of the candidates trying to scratch his way to the front, has brought in his brother, none other than George W. Bush, to campaign on his behalf. Um, you know, you, you don't know whether Donald Trump has, has finally burned his last bridge to any sort of consensus with the party he is ostensibly running in, or he's, he's finally uttered one of these things where people start scratching their heads and say, Hey, maybe he's right. Hmm. Um, I, I, I'm flummoxed. I really don't know yet. So we're going to all be, those of us who watch this stuff, we're going to really be paying attention to how this comes out. But, of course, put a period after that and say, ah, but in the first two weeks of March, there are a whole series of primaries that take place all at the same time in three different, well, that's, that's a bad way to put it, take place on three different days between the 1st and the 15th of March. Uh, and that will give us a real feel as to who becomes the front runner in either party. 
Is Jeb Bush still in the running for this? With that, with that sort of face-off with um, Donald Trump the other day, it looked like he's trying to claw back some sort of popularity, credibility, but he definitely seems on the back foot. Well, he's charismatically challenged to an extraordinary degree. <laughs> I think that's a nice way to put it. Well, have you watched him? <laughs> um, but what he, you know, he's trying, he, he's, he's got to thread a very strange path. On the one hand, he has to look like a reasonable man uh, who understands how you govern and isn't given to, to fits of ideological uh, splenetic attacks. On the other, he's got to defend his brother and his father's legacy. His father's legacy is rather easier to defend than his brother's. And one of those legacies from George W., of course, is the, the war in Iraq and the chaos that resulted in the Middle East. And by having to to do that, he's had to say things like, well, my brother's work, uh, he understood national security, he kept the country safe. And you wonder just what kind of internal turmoil he's going through while he says things like that. Um, is he back in the race? Well, if the race is between and someone who looks like a reasonable adult or a, a strongly conservative uh, ideologue like Senator Ted Cruz, or uh, an absolutely iconoclastic man uh, like uh, Donald Trump and his New York values, as one of his opponents said, um, Jeb Bush may have a chance in some of these states, in some of these primaries, and if it stays split this way between, say, for the sake of argument, three or four or even five uh, potential candidates, you have this extraordinary moment where they may all end up in the national convention for the Republican Party in which, the, in which there is no one candidate with a decisive advantage, no one candidate having a majority of all the delegates pledged to them, which means there's going to be more than one vote and then the horse trading starts. Absolutely, Brooks. Thanks for the thanks for the, the detailed sort of breakdown. And as usual, I'm sure we'll keep come to you coming to you in the run up to the elections later. Oh, I, in the I expect to have to talk about this one for a while. <laughs> <laughs> fantastic, Brooks. Thanks for coming on as always, and I'm sure we'll speak to you again soon. Take care. Okay, fantastic. If you're just tuning in, it's a Daily Maverick show on Cliff Central. Just going into the last portion of the show, we're just discussing. We were just discussing the American elections. And now I'm going to go and start speaking a bit about Sona. I'm just trying to switch over to, to Kate Wilkinson. Um, just one second from Africa Check. Greg, just very quickly. Um, I mean, you were over at Sona and it sounded like most of the... No, actually, I think we're good. Um, we'll just be going over to Kate Wilkinson, the senior researcher at Africa Check. Sorry for the, for the mix-up. Kate, can you hear us? Yeah, I can hear you. Fantastic. Kate, just very quickly, you 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 dug into the president's speech and you know and, and looked behind the numbers to see if the stuff was actually you know true or not, or whether the data was reliable. Um, so, firstly, what is your overall impression of the accuracy of some of the statements uh, that came from the president at the State of the Nation address? I think um, the, the the State of the Nation address that we heard last week um, was actually quite slim on on statements and claims about the state of South Africa. Mm -hmm. In the past, we've seen many more statements about education, you know, health, mm. infrastructure, and stuff like that, and we just didn't see it this year. So we actually had didn't have very many claims to look at this year. We did, however, look at five. We looked at electricity, energy, water, life expectancy, and HIV. And across the board, his statements were 
broadly broadly correct. There was really only one which we we declared incorrect, and that was this claim that there had been no no load shedding since August last year. Mm. We got in touch with ESCOM, and they told us that in fact the last time which there had been load shedding was on the 14th of September last year. So that was the one we had to declare incorrect. Um, but when it came to the others, um, he was mostly on, on the right side. I mean, yeah, when you mentioned the load shedding, I saw this uproar on Twitter of people who were, you know, staking, stating the times they had to sleep in a dark house because of load shedding. So that, you know, I'm glad you looked into that one. Um, secondly, mm-hmm. Kate, you looked into one about uh, the country's competitiveness and this claim that we are in the top 10 ranking at the, at the World Economic Forum. Yeah. And you say there's a bit more to that. Could you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, definitely. So um, one of the statements made by Zuma was that um, South Africa had been ranked in the top 10 um, for its financial services. And when we actually looked into the stat, we found that what he was referring to was um, a ranking done by the World Economic Forum. Mm-hmm. And that listed the sort of the, the access and availability of financial services in South Africa. Zuma's claim was correct according to that ranking. But as we've highlighted before, the World Economic Forum ranking sometimes uh, shouldn't really be taken as as gold. Um, the, and with regards to Zuma's statement and the ranking he was mentioning, that's actually just an opinion survey of South African business leaders. Uh, we don't know who they are. We don't know what they are, how old they are, what race they are, how much experience they have. They were just asked how would they they would rank the availability of financial services. Mm. So it's not it's not objective. There's no research. It's just based on opinion. And then there's a, a sort of further flaw with the survey whereby the World Economic Forum then takes a national ranking and turns it into an international ranking system. If you had asked those same business leaders how mm. they would rank South Africa's financial services in comparison to other countries, the ranking may have come out different, uh, differently. So overall, his statement is correct, although we gave it a, a verdict of yes, but. But the, you know that survey isn't the best and it, it isn't really an objective survey. It's just based on opinion. I mean, that's, I find that so fascinating, especially because, you know, we're in such an era of paying attention to the markets and this whole idea of being globally competitive is so important. So is this, does this mean we should just generally be skeptical of anything that says reported by the World Economic Forum? Um, what people should do is they should look at the survey because there are a few indicators which are based on data. So okay. if you look at something like participation rates, they are marked clearly. But we must remember mm. that this is the same survey which every year gives us the headline that we're lost in the world for maths and science. And again, that's based on an opinion survey, not on hard data or testing of students. It's just what these unidentified business leaders think of the state of maths and science education in South Africa. Mm-hmm. Kate, I find it quite interesting, sort of the lack of specific facts that they were often to check in 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 this Sona speech compared to last ones. Where I think I think some of the key issues that people were talking about in terms of the numbers are sort of tied. I think in the last Sona, or at least in the 2014 Sona, related to the sort of the sort of figures around the so-called good story to tell, and you know how many schools were being built a week, and how many RDP houses, and so on, and so on, and so on. Um, did you feel that while you were going through the speech and while you're actually doing your work that, hey, there's a little bit of a different focus this year? Yeah, definitely. I think a lot of people got the feeling that the people who were, were being spoken to were a certain sector of maybe the local and international community. And it, 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 we did really feel that the focus was on, you know, business interests and trying to create an impression of stability. And I think that was probably to the detriment of, you know, telling people 
and telling like South Africans, you know, what's happening in education, you know, what is the state of infrastructure projects, what's happening in social spending, what's happening in health, what progress have we made. Um, we rarely, usually with Sona, we, we take sometimes two or three days to wrap it up. And mm. I know in the last few years, we've sometimes only finished sort of the next Monday or Tuesday mm. really getting the answers. We were done really by Friday morning. There was very little in the way of sort of hard facts and statements about South Africa to check. Um, what we had done earlier in the week, was, which was probably more interesting, was looking back at some of the promises and commitments which Duma had made in all of his previous State of the Nation addresses. And that's where we mm. did find, you know, commitments to provide sanitary pads to girls and women in South Africa. Nothing has happened. Um, other commitments of those kinds have also sort of been left by the wayside because, you know, as each donor comes along, it sort of pushes the last one out and we're all looking at what's being promised now instead of what's been promised in previous years. I mean, I love that you brought that up. I was actually going to ask that just to track these statements over time because otherwise you can just say whatever you want at every sonar. So I love that there's an effort to, to stay in 2014, this was said, and in 2015, this was the yeah. report or a lack of report or just an ignoring of it. Yeah, so what, we, what we've done is we, we're in the process of you know, going through this sonar yeah. and we have a, a promise tracker where we're going to you know, slot, start slotting in the promises or commitments or targets which we're set in this sonar. And, you know, whether it's next year looking at them or whether it's in five years coming back to them, um, hopefully Africa Check will still be around and, and we'll be looking back at the promises and holding people accountable for what they said would happen. Kate, I'm interested in, so so today we've got the debates over the Zuma Sona speech, and I'm interested in whether you guys are going to go through some of the key points of those debates, because each sort of political party often criticising Zuma almost makes their own mini Sona speech. Are we going to be looking into some of the key figures and facts coming out from, from today and tomorrow's debates? Definitely. Um, we are eagerly awaiting the, the, the debates to start. Um, often these debates, but, well, I'm, I'm sure it's, it's quite obvious, but they're sometimes a bit more exciting. You have more personalities, you have, you have more people, you know, speaking off the cuff and, and, you know, interrupting each other, and we often get some really interesting claims to check. Um, so most definitely, um, probably today we'll be look, putting out some fact checks or some claims. And I'd encourage your listeners, you know, if, if they hear something or if you guys hear something that you think needs to be checked, tweet us at Africa Check. We'll have a look at it and we'll see if we can get an answer for you. Absolutely. Kate, before we let you go, I've seen on Twitter that Africa Check was having a back and forth with Kanye West about how many countries there are in Africa. <laughs> <laughs> it's actually, you, you, you wouldn't believe it, but we have a report. It was one of the first that we ever did, which was the very simple question of how many countries in Africa are there. And yeah. the answer can be quite tricky. And it's actually one of our most, actually like the most read reports on our website. Every day people are Googling that to try to find an answer. Kingsley, Kingsley, how many are there? I mean, Kanye West says there's one. <laughs> Africa Czech says West it depends who you one. ask. There's an AUUN debate. Who you ask. And I, yes, I think we, I'll go with kids. We have a, a very cool infographic on the website which you can click on according to, to who who's counting and what definition they're using. You can see how the countries are, are listed and rounded up. Okay, cool. We'll make sure to share that on Twitter too. Kate, thank you so Thanks, much. Man. I know you always make time for us and I really appreciate it. Thank you. No, it's great chatting to you. Cheers. Okay, fantastic. Just wrapping up the show. If you're just tuning in now, unfortunately, you just pretty much missed the show. But remember, you can download and share the podcast. Um, yeah, please share it far and wide. And now to play a song that I've been wanting to play on air for a long time off the new Kanye West album, Ultralight Beam. This song is a religious experience. I can't wait to hear this thing. You've been raving about it for the whole last I'm day. I'm telling you, I want to make sure they include it in the podcast and, and just let's just, let's just feel the magic, guys. Just feel it and we'll see you next week.
beam. When you're on the ultra light beam, this is a god dream. This is a god dream. This is everything. Everything. This is CliffCentral.com.